All right, uh, a couple things. Uh, stupid summer, I've had some parents say, that's a bad word in our house. We can't say stupid. Sorry. Okay, look, we got the graphic, got the logo. <laughs> Live with it, we'll be okay. All right. Um, and then also, on the back of your sermon notes, there is uh, questions. And this is the first time since we've been doing sermon notes that they aren't actually written by me. Uh, they're written by uh, some people in the GC at Element. There's actually more questions than normal, and that is probably what it will be like throughout the course of the series. And so you have the opportunity, if you're in a GC or just with some friends, to go through those questions. You don't have to do them all. You can pick and choose as you go through because there is a lot of questions now on the back of those. So you can grab one. Uh, and then, again... Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. You don't have to call me Mr. Really. That's the kids in like the little children's thing that call me Mr. Aaron. I'm always like, that's awkward. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. And there are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone and didn't leave it in the women's bathroom, uh, you can download an app. <laughs> it's called uh, Version. You can click on live on that. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the verses and all that go along with the message, why not you stand with me reading the God's Word? For some reason, I don't know why I did this, but this is like the longest message this morning. So, awesome. Sweet! Okay, Romans, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who do not suppress your truth but actually live in it that we would trust you to be the one as the revealer and the author and finisher of our faith and live lives that fully glorify you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so since Genesis is over, some of you probably feel like you lost a friend because you lived with them for a year and a half, and now they're gone. You're like, what are they going to do now? Anything up their sleeve? You know, yes, we're going to talk about how stupid we all are. That's what we're going to talk about. And I know, I mean, some of you actually haven't been at Element when we haven't talked about anything but Genesis. So we're going to do this series. It's going to be topical, not expository. Uh, Topical means that we talk about a topic. Expository is when we go through a book like we did through Genesis. And so this stupid summer is going to be 13 weeks where we talk about stupid things that Christians believe that aren't actually true. We could even call this spiritual urban legends, but stupid summer sounded better. Sounded better than dumb summer as well. So again, live with it, all right? Uh, we all know people in, that we would all consider dumb, right? 90, 90% of the people who try out for American Idol, <laughs> dumb, all right, all right. But smart people, we, they believe dumb things, or we believe dumb things. Eh, they, I'm probably pretty dumb so, as well. Uh, you know, a lot of smart people, I think, are dumb because they don't realize they're dumber than they actually think they are. Let me give you some examples. Napoleon. Napoleon, in history books, was probably one of the most genius uh, military strategists around. And what happens is Napoleon decides he's going to invade Russia in the middle middle of winter. So he goes into Russia with 610,000 troops into Russia, middle of winter, thinking, I am so smart, the winter is not going to harm me. By the time he finally decides to retreat, he has 100,000 troops left and goes back. Dummy. All right, there you go. Uh, Leading scientists in Galileo's day ignored what they could see with their eyes, and they branded him as a heretic. How about this one? Uh, Leadership team at IBM bet all their futures on mainframes and gave away the personal computer and the operating system to a young guy named Bill Gates. And we have been plagued with it ever since. So, buy a Mac. All right, uh, so smart people... (laughs) 
Smart people at times all act like dummies. It's because we misinterpret facts, we make incorrect assumptions, we rely on false information, and we get disastrous consequences. In Christianity, sometimes it's a cultural bias. Sometimes it's assumptions that are believed and accepted for so long, no one even questions them, we just assume them to be true. And history and Christianity both are full of intelligent people who act on stupid assumptions and we pay a high price in the end. I mean, I cannot even begin to tell you the number of Christians that I talk to who make life-altering decisions on what they think are biblical concepts, and they're not. They find out these things actually later didn't come from the scriptures at all. Most of the time, they are victims of a self-imposed belief or a Christian urban legend, a belief. This is like a, like a truism that we've heard somewhere and other people have told us that it came from a friend or a parent, a Sunday school class, a devotional book, gasp, a sermon. I mean, not mine, because I'm always right, but, you know, somebody else's, you know. And the myths, they, they sound almost true, almost true. They come from sources we trust, so we believe it, and then we begin to pass those things on to other people. This is why companies right, right now are getting boycotted, by, and they don't even know why. Procter & Gamble gets boycotted by Christians. They're satanic, and they're like, what, we are? Your logo is satanic. It is? Holy cow! You know, and, we're, and people just pass this around. How about bands like ACDC and KISS? What? Right? It's like, oh, their, their names are satanic. They're not. I mean, their names shouldn't give them a bad rap. What they do should give them a bad rap, but their names have nothing to do with the devil. It's, it's kind of crazy. And so sometimes when I point out stupid thinking, people get mad at me because it's like, everyone knows this is true. You can't, you can't say that. If I point something out from Scripture to somebody, then I'm written off as liberal or conservative or I don't have enough faith or whatever. So today, we're going to start easy on you, and over the next week, we'll offer you some encouragement and then also some harsh reality. So today, we're going to do this overview. We're going to talk about the truth, and where you have to start in all these things that we go with is that God defines truth, period. God defines truth. And when we try to make ourselves the means and the end of all truth, the Bible calls that idolatry. We place ourselves in God's position. God defines truth. So one of the most important books on any psychologist's shelf today is what's called the DSM. The DSM is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. And so one of the first things you're supposed to do, if you're a good psychologist, is come up with a diagnosis for your clients. Now, a lot of psychologists don't look for truth. They simply want to find something that fits and not really figure people out. And again, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have a need for a DSM, but we have one. So psychologists and us today have a natural tendency not to want to hear the truth about ourselves or share the hard truth with other people. Now, one entry in the DSM is narcissistic personality disorder. Here are the evidences if you have narcissistic personality disorder. Number one, a grandiose sense of self-importance, somebody who believes he or she is special, somebody who rarely acknowledges their mistakes, somebody who requires excessive admiration. If you're sitting next to somebody, you can just kind of elbow them, if that's or not, okay? Somebody who has a sense of entitlement. Somebody who is often envious of others or wants other people to be envious of them. Somebody who displays secret or open pride or arrogance. Now, the way you can really tell if someone's a narcissist, when they hear this, they start saying, whoa, I'm a narcissist, and it's fascinating. And then, they start, then they'll spend like an hour telling you about how their narcissistic personality disorder is, is more troubling and, and greater and bigger than anybody else's narcissistic personality disorder. Now, I say this because the Apostle Paul, among other things, I think would be considered a true master psychologist in a biblical sense because he has careful thinking about the human self, how it gets disordered, what it's supposed to look like when it's healthy. See, those things didn't get invented in the 20th century by by Freud. They were in the scriptures. And so Paul Paul writes a letter to a church in Rome. Open to Romans chapter 1. 
And in Rome, what you, what you find in this letter to Romans, you find a matchless diagnosis of the human condition. Like any diagnostician, Paul talks about the severity of our condition. Mine and yours, he talks about the nature of our problem, what it is actually called. Then he points towards healing. And so when I say the word psychologist, you don't necessarily have to think about what I'm saying, psychologist, today. Sometimes you say psychologist, people just write you off right there. I'm not listening. Just put your baggage aside and let's, let's go with Paul's diagnosis of the human condition. Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. This is long, so follow along. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul starts with a jarring statement that is about the severity of our problem. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, do you know, do you know in, in the Greek that phrase wrath of God would translate to literally in English? Wrath of God. That, that's why they translated it that way, okay? It's, that, that, that's why it's there. God is angry at what godlessness and wickedness are doing to the human race and all of his creation. But you have to notice it is the wrath of God. It is his wrath, not the wrath of people. It is not your crazy tantrum or anything like that. It is not human anger. So you have to be careful not to lay your anger issues on top of God. God doesn't have difficulty with anger management. He doesn't blow his top. He doesn't lose control, but God hates sin. And we like to hear God loves, God loves, and God does love, but he also hates what's worth hating. God hates sin. God hates lies that betray people. God hates bullying that demeans people. God hates unfairness that victimizes people. God hates gossip and backbiting that can destroy a community. God hates cruelty. God hates envy. God hates arrogance. He hates it when people get all puffed up with pride. He hates racism and he hates sexual immorality, not because he wants to rain on your parade because it demeans bodies and souls. He hates the neglect of the poor when people are more concerned with their own comfort than Christ. And so Paul, is what he's saying is simply true. And if you can't imagine a reason why a holy and just and perfect and righteous God could would be mad at sin in us and around us, it would be good to think again because we are always trying to find ways to let ourselves off the hook. And some of you are thinking, oh, I'm glad he's talking about the wrath of God. This, this is great. I know some people who need to hear about the wrath of God. It's not me, but somebody else does. That's what we always do. It's like, oh, man, they need to really hear about the, the wrath of God. But this is about all of us. Paul does something brilliant. This is why I say, you know, a good psychologist. He does something brilliant. He's writing to religious people at Rome. In the first section, if you notice the grammar, it's all third person. It's those people out there suppress the truth. They do really bad things. And everybody listening is going, yeah, that's right. Those people over there, they're in trouble. Wrath of God. He's mad. Woo, a good thing I'm okay. You go to Romans chapter 2, verse 1, and he addresses the people who are reading and hearing this letter. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. You're like, oh, don't came at me too. He changes the second person. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 5, but because of your hardened and impertinent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. 
Now, our condition is unimaginably serious. It's universally shared. That's the nature of what it is. That's universally shared. So, what is the diagnosis of it? So, Paul moves on. The diagnosis is a single word. It is idolatry. This is what he has been talking about. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. I mean, we, we, we are the ones who wanted to find truth for our own lives and not trust God for the truth for our lives. Do you know idolatry is one of the most serious charges you could level against anybody in the Old Testament scriptures? One great, I think probably one of the best Old Testament scholars, says that the entire Old Testament has one unifying principle, and that is the repudiating of idolatry. You all heard of the Ten Commandments, right? All the things you want to take down off courthouses. We can't have those. Ten Commandments, number one. You know what number one is? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one, no other gods. That's where God starts. Now, there's a fundamental text in Israel's world that, that Jews would pray every night before they went to bed, every morning when they got up. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When somebody comes to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what's the law all about? Jesus, as a good rabbi, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because idolatry is our biggest problem. Timothy Keller says, it is the sin beneath the sin. Because anytime we sin, we are allowing some competing desire to have a higher priority than God in our lives. And so that means the moment something, whatever it is, is my idol. All sin eventually involves idolatry. So you and I, we commit idolatry every single day, and it's really serious to God. But we also have another problem. Isn't it wonderful? It just gets worse. Okay? We have another problem. The problem is you don't even know what our real idols even are. The nature of idolatry, Paul says, is that we become blind to what our idols are. He says, you suppress the truth by your wickedness. Your thinking becomes futile, claim to be wise, but you become fools. This passage is so hard for us to understand because we live in such a therapeutic culture that tells us if it feels good, do that. You know, we'll talk about this next week when we talk about a conscience. But it's like, oh, your conscience didn't tell you it was wrong? Well, it must be okay. We'll go ahead and, and, and go do it. We're simply not used to this kind of language. Today, psychologists are taught to do non-directive client-centered therapy. Now, in client-centered therapy, you never give advice. You never tell anybody what to do. You just reframe what they're saying in other words. So all of a sudden, they start to feel a little listened to and esteemed with a positive regard. I read something by a Christian who went through this and had to learn this, and he subjected to this in his coursework, and he hated it. But he tells this story. He says, a woman comes in, and she says, I'm here because my husband signed me up for this. I did not want to come. I do not want to be here. Now what are we supposed to do? So he's got a tape recorder running next to him because his supervisor is going to listen to it and tell him how he did with his you know, non-directive therapy. And so he says, what I hear you saying is you're not really sure what's going on. And she says, that's what I said. Are you not listening to me? That's what, I, what are we doing here? And he goes, so what I hear you saying is you're not really sure what the agenda here is. She's like, that is what I said. Do you not understand? Why are we here? And he goes, so what I hear you saying, and she cuts him off and starts cussing at him. And he goes, I didn't know how to rephrase that. You know, so he goes, so it really ends pretty soon after that. And he, walks in, he goes, that's why I became a pastor, not a counselor. He goes, because I don't know what to do. 
Paul is not a non-directive therapist. Paul is very clear. He is very directive. He says the human heart, mine, yours, all of ours, are idol manufacturing plants. We're always turning something into an idol. And we have to come to grips with what our idols are because idols are not just statues. In ancient times, people had a very definitive idea of what an idol was. And it wasn't just a stick and it wasn't just a statue. They were things that consume our hearts. When Paul writes to the church in Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Oh, I always got to have more. That's idolatry in the seat of our heart. In Ezekiel 14, religious leaders of Israel, they set up idols, it says, in their hearts. Out of our hearts, these idols come out, and then they become the things around us. We can set up idols of reputation, security, power, success. I mean, there are some really good things that can become idols in our lives. How about work? Work, it is good to work. Some of you young guys at Element, you need to learn that because work's a good thing. You should learn how to do it. So anyway, but when work goes and it defines your identity, when it makes or breaks your sense of self-esteem, when it causes you to neglect your family, it has become your idol. How about family? Family is a good thing. We would recommend family for all of you, okay? Family is a very good thing. But when it becomes, oh, I've got to have a successful family, my kids got to look this way and go to these schools, and my marriage got to look bright and shiny and clean, if that becomes more important to you than God, then that has become your idol. How about Christianity? Christianity is great. I also recommend it for all of you. You would believe in Jesus, okay? But when the religion of Christianity causes you to start to trust in your own spiritual superiority, rather than trust the grace of Jesus Christ, even the religion of Christianity can become an idol. So the question is, how do we know when a pursuit is an appropriate desire? How do we know that? When it crosses the line from being appropriate into becoming an idol. How do we get past our stupidness? Well, I'm going to give you an IQ test. And IQ stands for idolatry quotient. Test? See how we're doing that? So I'm going to ask you some questions. We're not going to score it. You're not going to pass it around and show it to anybody. It's just you and God coming clean about what the idol is in your life. So I'm going to ask you six questions. All right? All right. Number one. You should write these down because I don't think they're in your notes. So number one, do I always feel the need for more? Do I always feel the need for more? This is the idea in the New Testament. There's a guy who had so much stuff, he's just like, I'm just going to build bigger barns. That's what I'll do. I'll keep it all. Okay? This is the idea. Part of what an idol does is it always tells you you need more. You don't have enough of me, and so you need to get more of me. And you think you are so free because you're running after this thing, but this thing has owned you. You end up being enslaved to this thing. Secondly, do I feel the need to control everything in my life? Do you hate it when somebody else has maybe some say-so over you or you, know, you want everybody to do what you say and not really listen to anybody else? Do you feel the need to control everything in your life? Number three, is the relationship in your life to which you are so attached that you have to have that for your life to be meaningful? Do you have to have this thing, this relationship for your life to be meaningful? I did premarital counseling for a couple a while ago. Uh, They're engaged. It was really clear, really fast, this guy did not want to marry this woman. So after our second time, I asked her to wait outside, and I sat down, and I talked to him, and I said, you don't seem like you want to get married to this girl. And he's like, "I I really don't. And for once, somebody listened to me. I have broken up engagements. I, will, I tried to break up more. 
but nobody listens to me when I try and break. But anyway, so somebody finally listened to me, you know, and, and after the breakup, this guy goes on. He meets another woman. He, he's madly in love with this other woman. He asks her to marry him. He gets married. And this whole time while he's dating this other woman and married to this other woman, this other girl is like trying to call prayer meetings to get together to have this other relationship break up. Even after this guy is married to another woman, she's trying to get people to pray that that marriage would break up. She's sending notes and letters to him and to his wife trying to break them up up it is crazy it's nobody in this room it's not you okay all right so anyway it, so what what happened what she thought was that god promised her that she would end up with him and when she didn't she said well i don't know if i want to believe in god anymore because god told me i'd end up with him what's the truth the truth is she made god a means to her own end that her relationship with this person was more important than anything else. What relationship in your life, you're like, I've got to have that or my life isn't meaningful. It happens in more ways than just relationships. It could be, God told me that job was mine. Well, God you know, told me that house was mine. It's idolatry. It is stupidity. And we must stop it. Question number four, and this is a good one. What am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught? What am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught? Now, this, this could be a relationship, this could be pornography, this could be a test. Uh, when I was in high school, I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. I just became a Christian, I wanted to follow Jesus, I start my senior year of high school, and I had to take Spanish. I am terrible with Spanish. Okay, I got burrito, taco, and like that's it. And, and I swear, nobody believes this, but true story, I thought open was Alberto. It's, it's abierto, if you ever, okay. And I'll tell you how I learned this. We were down in Mexico, had a group of kids. One of the girls broke her arm. We had to go to hospital, got, the, got her arm set. On the way back to where we were staying, which is a few hours past the border, I had to stop at a pharmacy and get some painkillers so she could sleep throughout the night. So I walk into this pharmacy, and I walk in and go, are you Alberto? And the guy's like, no. I'm like, but your door's open, right? And it, this is how I learned, you know, the girl with the broken arm's like, it's Abierto, you know, and I'm like, Oh, so I finally learned how to say open. But, but that, I mean, so, so I cheated the entire class. I had it. My teacher actually called me super cheater the entire semester, but she never actually caught me. So I got through the class by cheating. My idol was my own laziness. It's, it's my, my graduation. I didn't want anybody to think I wasn't smart enough to graduate high school and couldn't make it through Spanish. I wanted to impress people. I wanted people's approval. And I still struggle with that to this day. I mean, sometimes I, I struggle when I've got to say some really mean things to you. It doesn't stop me from saying mean things to you, but, but you know, sometimes I struggle with it because I want you to like me. That is an idol I have to surrender every single day. And you've got to understand, the idols are rarely, clearly evil to you. What it usually works is you, is you have something that you have to connected to your strengths, your giftedness, your calling, and then you or the enemy starts to twist that 5, 10, 20 degrees off course, and it pulls you away from letting God be God in your life, and this thing takes over your life. This is why the question, what am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught, becomes so important. Question number five, what desire is so strong that can warp my thinking and make me engage in defensiveness, self-justification, denial, and secrecy? What desire is so strong in you that it warps your thinking? Now, it's kind of interesting today. Psychology has kind of verified all the stuff that Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago. And Paul comes back to this over and over and over, this whole idea of idolatry. He says, because we do this, we distort our thinking. We suppress the truth. Our thinking becomes futile. Our foolish hearts get darkened. We think we're wise, but we're actually fools. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And Paul understood that it's not just our thinking that's fallible. It is distorted by sin and wickedness. 
Now, a few years ago, I talked to you guys about this really interesting book. It's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And in this book, it cites all these hundreds of examples of how people's thinking becomes futile, about how they say, well, well, I didn't do that, when maybe they actually did do that. It's a psychological book, so the authors wouldn't use the language that Paul uses, but it is. And even if you go throughout the book, there are some things that they say in the book that I think their thinking becomes futile because they didn't realize the things that they just said or just things that they wanted to be true weren't, weren't actually true. The problem comes along when we say mistakes were made, not I made a mistake, just mistakes were made. I mean, it is fascinating how our memory problems work. There's a story of an elderly couple, guy's going out to the store, and his wife says, would you do me a favor? He goes, sure. She said, I want a ham sandwich. She goes, I'll get you a ham sandwich. She goes, you need to write this down. I want a ham sandwich on wheat bread, tomato, lettuce, mustard. The guy says, I'll get it for you. She goes, you're going to forget. You need to write it down. He says, I don't need to write it down. I know what you want, woman. Get off my back. She goes, you need to write it. I am not going to. And he walks out the door, right? Half an hour later, he comes home, and he hands his wife a hot fudge sundae with cherries and peanuts. And she is just disgusted. She's like, I told you to write it down. Where's the whipped cream? The truth is, we all actually have memory problems of some sort, you know, but our memory mistakes are not at random. They are always what happens that makes us feel better about ourselves. In this book, the authors say, your memories are a distorted self in a self-enhancing direction. A self-enhancing direction is just therapeutic language for godlessness and wickedness. That's what it is. And it, it turns out people remember voting in elections they didn't vote in. They remember voting for candidates that won that they didn't actually really vote for. They remember giving more money to charity than they actually gave. They remember saying brave things to somebody else they never actually said. They remember winning arguments they never actually won. They remember their children walking and talking at an earlier age than their children actually walked and talked. Nietzsche, you know, the godless dude that he was, actually says, I have done that, says my memory. I have not done that, says my pride. He says, and my pride will not yield. He says, it's my memory that yields. Memory yields, pride wins. What is the desire in you that is so strong that it has distorted your thinking into making you think it is right? Question number six. What desire do I have that sometimes gets in the way of my paying attention to God or following Jesus? What gets in the way of that? You know, right, right now, I mean, you don't, nobody looking around, but if you've been thinking about something, maybe you should write it down. You're not going to pass it around. No one's going to see it just kind of between you and God. You know, that's, it's a humbling exercise, but I think it helps if you write it down because you are naming what your idol is. Work, family, success, achievement, love, money, approval, power, reputation, security, sex, your body, anger, whatever it is, we're all idolaters. And we have to come to grips with what it is. You know, and, and just so you know, in the scriptures, you're not just, just called to avoid idolatry. Deuteronomy 7.26, Moses says, you shall utterly detest and abhor it. In, in the book of 1 John, John's writing to this small church, and there's all these issues going on around it. But he ends his book to this little church in 1 John 5.21 and says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because he knows what they do. You have to understand, on one hand, idols are tremendously weak. They are so weak. They do not have the power to move you to the life that God wants you to have or the life that you really want. They have no power to get you there. But yet you keep giving so much to them. On the other hand, they're incredibly strong because when they ensnare you, they hold you down and they hold you back. Many aspects of idolatry are very similar to addiction. And in many ways, what the Bible calls idolatry in our culture, we talk about addiction. 
because idols will take away your freedom. And this is the idea of where grace comes in, where grace comes in. Because with idols, you cannot really just get rid of an idol by turning away from it. You must turn towards something else. Timothy Keller says it like this. He says, we are all governed by an overwhelming positive passion. And what he does is he gives an example back in the book of Genesis. See, so you haven't lost your friend. He's still hanging around somewhere. Genesis, there he is. In Genesis, Jacob meets a young woman named Rachel, and she tells her, his, tells her uncle that he wants to marry her. And he offers to work how many years for her? Seven years. Ends up working how many in the end? Fourteen. Exactly. And so what happens is it says this in Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Every single day, seven years, shows up with a song in his heart, a smile on his lips. Why? Because Rachel was his passion. He was serving for something greater. Let me ask you, would any guy in here, you know, would you work seven years for a woman? Every guy that's married should raise their hand right now. No one's going to take you up on it. You're already married. I'm giving you a snowball. You'd be like, oh, honey, yes, I would work a million years for you. Thank God we're married. See, this is, this is the idea behind this. You know, why did seven years seem like just a few days? Because his overwhelming passion. New Testament, you run into this guy, his name is Zacchaeus. He has an overwhelming passion for money. And what this overwhelming passion for money did is he gave up everything. His reputation, he gives up his community, friendship, honor, integrity, all to get money. And then one day he meets Jesus. And on that day, you know what he says? He says, I'm done with trying to make money my idol and money my God. I'm going to pay everybody back four times over that I cheated, and anything that's left, I'll give half of that to the poor. That's what he does. What enabled him to be freed from his idol and live in truth? He met a new overwhelming positive passion, and that was Jesus. You have to understand that our God has come and lived and died and rose for you and I. We submit our lives to him. We turn towards him. He is the one who gives our lives meaning and purpose. In order for us to give up our idols, live in truth, and trust the God of the scriptures, we must be a people who are focused and follow Jesus. The good news is that in Jesus, life with God, forgiveness, eternity is available as a gift of grace. And I'll tell you, if you're somebody who has idols taking over your life, if you're somebody who has never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the smartest thing you can ever ever do with your life, and especially starting the stupid summer, is start on a note of genius and surrender yourself and your desires to first and foremost Him. Because Jesus alone is alone worthy of being your overwhelming passion. And you will only know the true truth when He is more important in your life than you. He has to be more important than you. You trust him with all that you are. And I'll tell you, this is the idea of communion because he is trustworthy. He has proven himself over and over and over to be trustworthy. I mean, he comes and he lives and he dies and he rises from the dead. This is why you take that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us and you break it. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be people who understand that he is true to what he has said. He is the one we can truly turn towards and trust with our lives. We surrender, we follow, we give him everything. Because he is not an idol. He is the God that leads us into true freedom. And you must get rid of the idols that have so ensnared you and led you in a path that you are just stuck in. Jesus longs to set you free. 
to give you the freedom he always intended for you to live in. The band's going to come up, and they'll do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, uh, maybe you know you have an idol that's kind of consuming your life, or maybe you don't really want to talk about the idol and just say, hey, can you just pray for me? And you know, I don't want to say what it is. But you know, if you would like prayer, they'll be back there to pray for you. Um, thanks. Uh, there's offering boxes inside of all in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, and there's food and stuff in the back. And again, we, we try and get you guys connected to one another, maybe asking the questions, holding each other accountable. I mean, if you have people in your life you trust, you should honestly name what your idols are to them and so that they can help you in your life to walk the, the road that Christ calls us to. You know, because you know, when, when, when you have an idol in your life, you are not worshiping Jesus because that idol is overtaking you. And so I would encourage you, worship Jesus in all things. You know, that should be the overwhelming passion of your life, who he is, because then everything else comes into better focus and everything else makes sense. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, uh, as we start this whole series called The Stupid Summer, I ask that you would be, help us be a people who are genius, a people who actually trust you, and live in the grace and the goodness that you have provided to us and for us. That we would honestly name the things in our lives which so ensnare us. Whether it's stuff, whether it's a relationship, whether it's comfort, whatever it is, have us name it so that we can live in the truth. And that we would understand that you are the one who is the truth. And you are the one who sets us free. Open our eyes to see what has ensnared us. And open our eyes so we turn to you and honor you. Because you already have called us home as your people. And that we would understand that great grace and that great calling and our lives will be fully representative of who you are in them. Today, teach us to be a people who understand more and more your extravagant love and grace to us, and that we would step into your arms and live in true freedom. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.